0: Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, how are you doing today?
1: I'm pretty good with a cold. So, if I sound a little weird, that's why.
0: <laughs> well, you're you're soldiering on in the face of adversity, which we always appreciate around here.
1: <laughs> They're going to put on my tombstone A for effort. Oh my goodness! I, I don't know if that's a grim <laughs>
0: reflection or a positive one, but it's one or the other. Really looking forward to doing this episode today, which is going to cover what I think is such a rich ex- intersection of both interpersonal skills and intrapersonal skills. In our important relationships at home and at work, we need to respect the needs of others while also sticking up for our own needs. But that's often easier said than done. And today we're going to be talking about how we can grow the lasting inner strengths that allow us to do just that, Uh, how we can be, to put it a certain kind of way, both friendly and fearless. To help us do that, we have the pleasure of being joined by a longtime friend of yours and mine, Dr. Daniel Ellenberg. Before we get to Daniel... I'd like to take a moment to remind you about our new Patreon account. It's at patreon.com backslash beingwellpodcast. If you'd like to support the show through Patreon, I've included a link to it in the description of today's episode. It honestly means so much to me, and to Rick as well, that the people who listen to the show are willing to extend to us their support. There are so many different ways for you to access these kinds of mental health resources, and whether you support the show by becoming a patron, telling a friend about it, or really even just listening, it truly means a lot to us. So, that said, on to Daniel. So Daniel has been practicing marriage and family therapy for over 30 years, and is the co-founder of Relationships That Work, and the founder and director of Strength With Heart Men's Groups. He's led workshops at the Esalen Institute, Spirit Rock, the Association of Humanistic Psychology, Stanford University, and, of all places, NASA, and is the co-author of Lovers for Life, Creating Lasting Passion, Trust, and True Partnership. And his work as a leadership coach, communication consultant, licensed psychotherapist, seminar leader, and facilitator, Daniel's helped people create meaningful, inspiring, and resilient personal and professional lives. So Daniel, how are you doing today? It's great to have you here.
2: I'm doing great. Happy to be here.
0: So Rick and Daniel are actually going to be teaching a one-day workshop dedicated to the topic of Friendly and Fearless on February 21st through the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley. If you happen to live in the Bay Area, you can attend the event in person, and the workshop will also be streamed live online. So regardless of where you live, it'll be possible to attend in mind or maybe even spirit, if not in body, so
1: that's good to know. Anywhere from around the world.
0: Anywhere from around the world, which is pretty cool. So to start us off, Friendly and Fearless is very evocative. It's the great name for a workshop title. It sounds cool on a bumper sticker. But what do those words mean practically to you and what do you think somebody looks like when they're both friendly and fearless?
2: I think that oftentimes people think that they're they're completely different but actually they're very aligned. So a person can be really kind and decent and compassionate and also have clear boundaries. I think a lot of times people are they can be very kind but they don't know how to, to, to be on their own side, as Rick would say, or to stand up for themselves. Or there are people who are always sticking up for themselves, but they're not very kind about how they do it. And so what we're working on is how do you bring those two together, the confluence of friendly and fearless. And so it really has to do with a relational mindset, a relational mindset in the sense that you're connected with yourself. You're connected with your own sense of decency and generosity and compassion and a genuine desire to foster connectedness with the other person, even in the midst of challenges and difficulties that may emerge in the relationship. And that you're also aware of the other person, you know your needs, and that this is, this is another decent human being, even if you're not experiencing them as very decent in the moment, but to really have a sense of their good intentions. Because it's very, very easy to go into negative attribution, like assuming if a person didn't respond to an email or had a harsh tone, or, or what seemed to be a harsh tone, that this person is mean, or mean-spirited, or ill-intentioned in some way. And so friendly and fearless is really keeping front and center both your own wants and needs, and the others, and a willingness to have meaningful discourse about how to stay connected while ideally having both of your wants and needs met.
1: That's really interesting. So first I have a little comment that the friendly word, we mean it kind of loosely, and it covers a lot of ground, and I think there are people in our lives that we don't feel friendly toward, but we can feel not hateful toward while also having a sense of compassion for them. And fearless, too, is a very stretchable word. I think it's natural in certain situations for the heart to be pounding some and for there to be anxiety around the edges, but in the core of our being, there's a quality of courage and we can still step forward. So that's a clarification, certainly, I I know you'll share uh, in what's meant here. Do you want to comment on that?
2: I think one way of looking at the fearless part, which made me actually feel better because having been someone who has had many meaningful and challenging conversations with many people over decades, I don't know that I've ever been completely fearless without fear. And so when I was speaking with a friend, a friend of ours about this, he said, well, look at like fear less. (laughs) That's really good. And I like that because i do believe that we can each arrive at a place in our lives where we're fearing less than we did which is not to say that we don't have any fear fear is natural the kind of the underlying anxiety when you're going into a situation or context where it there's some awareness of potential threat i mean you don't want to be completely oblivious to potential threats around you while at the same time the the friendly part as you were saying Rick it doesn't necessarily mean that you're friends with the other person but you're working with and on your own nervous system you know so that you're not in this place of super reactivity but you're calming yourself down and reminding yourself that it's actually not a survival situation because one right. of the big challenges is that our brains don't necessarily know the difference between a social interaction and a physical danger to our survival and so we conflate the two unconsciously and unknowingly that that's happening and, and what i've said to people at times clients of mine or friends or colleagues well it seems like you're in survival no, i'm not in survival and so we'll check in with your body if your heart is pounding if your heart is pounding and you're sweating you know when you, and your jaw is tightening you're you're feeling survival and not to mm-hmm. batify that, but to recognize it and, and to go step back and even use like, Is this really a survival situation? How can I calm myself, coach myself to just settle down and keep focusing on your end in mind, which is like your vision? And I think that a lot of times people jump into conversations where they don't have uh, a strong awareness about what their outcomes are. What do they mm-hmm. want to have happen? And, and using, using that point, kind of that vision, it's like uh, in, in cybernetics, you have a point of, of reference that you're moving toward. And when you go off course, you find a way to get back on course by reminding yourself, okay, we're working together. I want this to really work out, or this is my spouse. And yes, I, can, I notice uh, that the spark of hatred coming up but then we practice weight, like, why am I talking? Like, why do, do I really want to go there? And use restraint at that time by remembering your positive vision and your positive outcome about what you really want to have happen and not be pulled down into the underworld by those darker impulses.
1: So I wonder, Daniel, if you could walk us through kind of succinctly a concrete example from your own life, say perhaps even recently, in which you were challenged to remain friendly and fearless in a high-stakes interaction with someone, a conflict situation, uh, a a vulnerable need situation, and kind of walk us through what happened for you in it and what you tapped into inside yourself to come
2: to, let's say, a soft landing. For some reason, my wife comes to mind. (laughs) I have no idea why. Why would conflict ever arise in a marriage? I I don't really know that. But I'll take a stab at it anyway. (laughs) So, Forrest and I both know your wife, and we
1: really love her. She's a wonderful person, and you are lucky (laughs) to
2: be married to
1: her. I just want to say that for the record. Yes,
2: lucky as the the definition of opportunity plus preparedness. Uh, Indeed lucky. There are numerous times where little events come up where she has, in my perception, a sharp tone, and I can feel uh, my heart race for a moment. And I, I generally, at this point in my life, I generally step back because I know where that will go if I raise my voice. I don't always. I'm not always successful. I'm just more successful than I used to be because I can. I can see it. Uh, in a way that I used to be reflexive in terms of my reactions to things. Having grown up with a father who was a major rager and having learned to do that, a kind, of, uh, kind of a term I call psychoosmosis, psycho how you take in the, the messages mm. and the energy through the permeable membranes of the brain. And once inside, they take residence and consolidate in there. And the good news is, that, as you well know, Rick, in terms of your self-directed neuroplasticity, focus that you can change your brain. And I have changed my brain quite a lot, you know, over the decades. In fact, it's getting near perfect. (laughs) I'm I'm actually joking about that. It's gotten better. Uh, And so just generally speaking, I'm able to see that more and look at the reaction before it occurs and then go, do I really want to go there? And the answer is no. And I want to say something else about for each individual, I think we have different tasks in life. I've been uh, an outlier in terms of my willingness to speak up, not always wisely. Uh, so my focus has been actually saying less. Hmm. Most people, I would venture to say, they've, they have said less than they need to. And for their task, is, it's speaking more, and ideally, in a friendly you know, and wise manner. I, on the other hand, have had so many instances of having interactions with people around things that have bothered me, or I've wanted to challenge them, or even as a facilitator, I've been very willing to point out things to people that, truth be told, most people wouldn't. Not always wisely. So know your tasks.
0: To kind of piggyback on that a little bit, there are two things that you brought up there that I kind of want to speak to you for a second and ask your take on. The first is that probably my biggest personal sort of running uh, shtick has been this idea of the space between a stimulus and a response and how I think that like most of the good nature that happens in human interaction comes when we're able to make that space wider and wider and wider over time as opposed to just having an immediate reaction to something that happens to us so to we can as, you know, we can respond rather than react to it. That's kind of one way to frame it. And just like as the extent to which we can make that space wider, I think the more happy people generally are. So that's kind of the first thing. And then the second thing is that it's funny that most of the time when we talk about effective communication, we talk about what I would say the domain of like interpersonal skills. How can I skillfully communicate my wants and needs to another human? But a lot of what you're talking about here, actually I would describe as more like intrapersonal skills, like traits, content inside that we can then leverage to become more externally skillful, because that external skillfulness is actually based on our nature as a human. So in your practice, which has been really extensive working with people, what are some of the specific things that you've done with people to help them either know what their thing is, or then develop some of those internal skills that are required to become better at that thing?
2: Those are excellent questions. Oh, thank you. This is this is clearly a case of where the the apple is not falling very far from the tree. <laughs> I
0: am I have my father's son over here.
1: You so are your I'm father's doing my son. Best. He's There's a Jermah no Forest. We better yes. watch out I know. for He's that sweet guy. Sweet talking us. I like <laughs> it. Sweet talking us.
2: So, so I think a lot of times, just in general, the intrapersonal in terms of communication isn't focused on enough. So, for example, a lot of times in organizations that have these communication courses, having critical conversations or authentic conversations, which is super important. And people can learn how to do those. There are technical steps that can be taken that maximize the probability of things going well. But generally what isn't done is the, the inner skills of calming your nervous system and working with your reactivity doesn't happen. And the irony is when you need those skills most, is when you have least access to them. Because the part of the brain, that part of the brain goes offline. And instead the reactive brain takes over. So you may learn great communication skills and you may know them, but you don't have access to them if you don't know how to calm your nervous system. And so the intrapersonal is really critical to the overall communication process. So if you're in a heightened state of reactivity and then you want to have a conversation And then you're going to practice your communication skills. Well, good luck on that one. It just doesn't Mm -hmm. seem to work very well.
0: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Being Well today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot beingwell Being Well. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS-01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS-01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off, oneskin.co, with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information. Because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: What do you do? I mean, you're pretty hot-blooded. I've known you a long time. You grew up, as you said, in a Family environment with a lot of negative emotion, a lot of intensity, invasive scary what do you what are your go to's right on the spot when you start to get revved up
2: the one of the things I practice is weight, as I was mentioning before. I just go I can see it you pause absolutely, yeah, Tara Brock talks about the sacred pause yeah what what Forrest is talking about before i'm in yeah, utter utter agreement with because when you think about. The nature of reaction. Reactions happen immediately. And it's great to have reactions. And so you're playing football, you don't want to be thinking, well, that guy's running out there, maybe I should think about covering him. I mean, that's not going to work very well. So instead, you have to recognize the difference between an, an actual survival situation where you really need to react in the moment versus the vast majority, the vast, 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 vast majority of situations where it's not And so the practice for me is one of pausing. I really, I can see it, I can feel, I can feel something growing in my chest, my jaw tightening, going uh, introceptive in a way. So instead of externalizing there and feeling as if uh, for me, like I'm two dimensional, I actually, I literally feel my three dimensionality. I focus on my back, I focus on my shoulders. I focus on my feet if I'm standing and just, you know, being there. And I literally say to myself, Daniel, Daniel, <laughs> you know, I don't say it out loud, but I will just like, don't stop, pause, breathe, breathe. Breathing is a critical piece of this. And it's something I've learned to do much better over time. Cause really, if you were to actually look at people's breathing patterns in conflict, it could be predictive of what they're going to do, what they're going to say, how they're going to react. And so if you can step back and breathe and remind yourself as I do, it's okay I'll Get through this. I basically draw my inner coach in a way that I might uh, be an external coach to someone else in a pressured, difficult, uh, stressful situation. I do that with myself. And the good news is that the, the self I'm doing it with uh, these days tends to listen as, mm. a, as opposed to push me aside like it used to earlier in my life when I was trying to develop and an ultimately master these tools. It didn't didn't listen that well. Now, another thing I, I, I do is I keep focusing on outcome. You know, what do I want to have happen? Even if I feel blindsided by it, I have a sense of what I want that relationship to be like, and I can see the possibility of harming it, which is not to say that I don't sometimes. I'm certainly with my wife at, at, at times I react very suddenly quickly, you know, I can get irritated and then there's all that, you know, damage control and all the time it takes and, you know, and I can see that. Now, there's this there's a scene in a beautiful mind that I like to reference. At the very end of it, John Nash, who was schizophrenic with hallucinations, there was a guy from the Nobel Committee who came from Stockholm to see him, basically to check out if he was sane enough to receive the Nobel Prize in Economics. And basically, the guy was saying, well, do you kind of like do you see you know, basically, are you still hallucinating?" And John Nash says to him, he says, well, I still see them. And he could see the hallucinations of his college roommate and the little girl and somebody else. He said, but I just don't pay attention to them anymore. Mm. And I I thought that was a beautiful uh, example of mindfulness, that you can see the patterns that have through nature, nurture, the confluence of those have been uh, encoded in your brain and in your behavior, but you can see them now and you slow it down and step back from that and go, do I want to, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. And for for me, having come very, very far on this path, very, very, very rarely get into dramas with people. I mean, it's extremely rare for me these days versus it was absolutely common fare for me i getting arguments with people all the time and so it's the person I am now at 66 years old is so different from the person I was at 20, 30, 40, 50. Even in my in, you know I was changing over the years but it's it's really picked up.
1: I can certainly attest to that as someone who's known you for about 30 years, literally. More. And <laughs> maybe even more. Um, Daniel, can you also speak to warm-heartedness? compassion, kindness, love, you know, those qualities that you also, I'm sure, tune into uh, in the middle of a high stakes or even high conflict interaction with another person.
2: It's amazing, Rick, when you just said that. Uh, I wasn't, as like feeling all warm at, at the moment, but when you said that I could feel my eyes and just a little moisture, you know, around my eyes, because this territory is so deeply meaningful to me. Yeah, I think for me, what I've become increasingly aware of is my own sensitivity, and how I was born sensitive, and I grew up in an environment which which was not. Yeah, and naturally to step back and go, like, well, what happened to this person, who who just happens to be me? But I also think it's useful to to kind of step out of yourself, as as I've done many times, and go, what what happened to this being? Who happened to be born this particular person in this particular time in this particular family and be curious about that person and what i've come to see really is that i had to hide my my sensitivity and my vulnerability my openness my genuine desire for caring relationships because there there was some of that but it was there was a dearth and As I've gotten older and I've become more aware and more clear about who I am, I've realized that my deepest desire is to love, you know, Mm -hmm. and to feel connected. And and I wasn't aware of that when I was in my younger adult years, or even more my middle years. I wasn't so aware of how deeply important love and care and and sweetness and peace is to to me. And so that way in, in terms of doing that for quite a long time, it's it's absolutely rewired my brain.
1: You know, there's a phrase that came to me from many years ago uh, in my own marriage, loving at will. In other words, it's, it's easy to love when it's just coming right out of you readily, right? But how do we love in the face of provocation? Uh, how do we how do we bring a deliberateness sometimes to our love? And people can say, well, then you're doing it deliberately. It's not real love. But to me, it's twice loving. Because first, it's love. And second, it's loving to will love in the face of provocation. And to realize actually that love uh, is a volitional act. Absolutely. That it's something we, it's a verb. As, duh, obviously love is a verb. If I could, bounce out here slightly in a different direction people may not know listening that you are the president-elect now of the of the division within the american psychological association that focuses on men and masculinity i forget the exact title of the division but you're you're kind of a muckety-muck in that territory and you've been uh, working with uh, male psychology to the extent that that term is useful for quite a long time here and i was thinking about a phrase you used early on Relational mindset, which is I just think is brilliant, it's like growth mindset, relational mindset, the notion or the feeling of being embedded in a field of relationships in the foreground of awareness or as a palpable felt sense along the way, and you know to stereotype to some extent and generalize, classically men are not socialized to abide in a relational mindset they they tend to get socialized to abide in a task oriented mindset or an achievement oriented mindset, you know, acting upon objects kind of mindset. And I wondered if you could speak to, you know, avoiding the the pitfalls and the landmines of gender stereotyping and all the rest of that. I wondered if you could speak to first, some of the things that you've seen, you know, commonly uh, that men can learn with regard to being friendly and fearless. Is that all? <laughs> I know I threw out, that was a long intro.
2: <laughs> it's just a small question. That should be 30 seconds, no problem. It's very, very near and dear to me. I mean, I've been leading men's groups now for 36 years, weekly process men's groups where really men learn how to relate and develop more of a relational mindset. And I don't think that that is something that is scripted into our brains. Uh, for most of us, early or even later in life, and uh, it really needs to change. I call my men's work strength with heart, and it's very much part of friendly and fearless. That you can be strong, you can have boundaries, you can be clear, and you can be heartful. You know, in the process, heartful, open, caring, kind, compassionate. You know, all of those. And I think that when men are In a context where there is openness, and I mean openness in the sense of a willingness to uh, express one's insides in a vulnerable way, which to me is really courageous, which is why I call one of my workshops Ultimate Courage. It's like really focusing on how can you be more aware of what you're experiencing, beauty warts and all, which is the intra-personal part, and then be willing to share that openly with others which is the interpersonal part and so i really look at if you want to call authenticity or personal truth it's it's the confluence of being both aware of yourself and your willingness to be honest about that to other people and i've seen working with thousands of men over the years that guys who have not told their best friends certain details about their lives and coming to a group of men where people are being open about themselves that they're willing to drop in and speak. I so I really think we need more contexts where men realize and, and boys, ideally earlier on, realize that it actually is cool to disclose yourself. And one of the problems is that most men are living in a paradigm of competitiveness: who's going to win, who's going to get the greatest status. Some of that's hard, part of the hard wiring, you know, but a lot of it is actually soft wiring. And that can change. That part can really change. And so, in a competitive environment, you're looking for your opponent's vulnerabilities and exploiting them so you can win, like in a sporting event. But in a cooperative paradigm or a collaborative paradigm, you can share your vulnerabilities, and those are an opportunity to actually get to know and to care for the other person more. And so, I think of the the word intimacy of the phonetic of that, into me see, allowing others to see into you. And that actually increases connectedness. And so I can see where, where guys are, quite a lot of guys who, who I've known are really sharing more of themselves. I know like you, Rick and I, you and I have had very open, honest conversations about many, many different things over many, many years now. And I think more of you, you know, for your willingness to share with me about things that you know, come up as incidents, issues in your life, like we all do. You know, it's it's challenging being alive, period. And we all need confidants and people we can share with. And that's what creates a good feeling in life and feeling like, you know, overcoming loneliness, which is epidemic these days in the, in the age of social connectedness, ironically. You know, and so I think, that we are just lacking, in general ways, in empathy. Like, what is it like to be that other person? What's it like to be a woman? I don't know. I mean, I I ask questions. But the thing is, it's not like every woman is the same, nor is every man the same. You know, the term intersectional, I think, is, is useful and important in the sense that, you know, there's racial identity and there's socioeconomic class and there's, you know, there's age and where you grew up and temperament and so many different factors that ultimately form an individual i think it's really useful to step back and go how can we actually become more curious about the individual and not just the gender you know and to and to really ask questions like what what is it actually like to be you has anyone ever asked like hey forrest what is it like to be you
0: Interestingly enough, yes, it does actually happen from time to time, but only because of the circles that I run in. I run in very specific circles that where that kind of a question gets asked. And I think that to your point, the overwhelming majority of people on the planet are not being exposed to environments that are like that.
2: May I ask you a question for us? Yeah, please do. So what is that like for you? If someone like genuinely comes to you and says, hey, what, you know, what, what are you about? And they're not like, they're not saying like, hey, what's up with you? You know, but they're actually yeah. curious about you.
0: It's a great question. Um, I think that in, I mean, I have two reactions to it normally. The first reaction is that I'm often very happy to engage that subject in like a full way because I feel like I've done, you know, a reasonable amount of investigation into my interior and therefore I'm like, oh, there's some interesting stuff in there. Here, <laughs> let me share it with you to a certain extent. That's my own bias. Uh, that's my own kind of content. It's and true. Then, yeah. I, and then I think that there's also a, a element of it that, you know, naturally can be a little like, whoa, why, why are you asking me this? Like, what is it that you want to glean from me or whatever it is? So it's this funny combination of, I would say, somewhere between 60 and 90 percent intrigue or desire to share mixed with 10 to 40 percent. W- where are we going with this? And those are kind of the two sides of my, my typical reaction to that kind of a question. I
2: appreciate your openness in, in answering that. And I think that it's very much related to friendly and fearless, mm. what you just said, in the mm. sense that if you genuinely experience in that moment this person's utter openness and curiosity and even warmth towards you and their desire to know you better, in all likelihood, that's not going to trigger your threat reaction. Right yeah totally, but perhaps you pick something up in there, and as human beings or human animals or humanimals, as I like to call us, that whole portal of safety versus threat is huge it's the first it's the first portal of relating you know friend or foe I think
1: one of the great gifts we can give other people is not to be afraid of them, in other words, when I think back on for example a a little bit of a uh Conflict oriented back and forth with my wife earlier today about a very small thing So I'm interested in doing something maybe in a year and her initial reaction to that was along the lines of Yeah, not a very good idea. I felt irritated and threatened by that and but underneath it all I I think I was threatened by it. I was afraid and to the extent that I could sit in not feeling afraid and In that space that we're talking about, right, between stimulus and response, then I would have been more able to have a kind of freedom inside that space and not come back at her, let's say, with a kind of irritated case for why my idea is still a good one. And uh, I think in general, it's such an interesting thing to feel what a gift it is to others to not be afraid of them. And to give them kind of room to breathe, you know what I mean, uh, around us and not be alarmed by them. Because when another person is alarmed by us, we feel it. And then also they, do various, they have various reactions because they're alarmed by us. And it's a really interesting way to frame this, that one of our gifts to others is to not be in fear, right? To not walk down the road of life in fear. Yeah,
0: Absolutely. If I could kind of like steer this a little tiny bit back toward your work with uh, men's groups, but really couples in general, because there's something that's been a particular interest of mine recently that I would love to get your take on. Pray tell. If people listened to, we did a New Year's episode um, where we were both kind of setting some intentions for the next year. One of my real interests recently uh, has been around this idea of self-concept. And about how often people in a variety of different ways become increasingly married to their self-concept as time goes on. And there are many ways in which behavior change, habit change out in the world is based as much about changing the view of the nature of the self as it is about actually changing practice out in the world from like a habitual, oh, I'll just wake up an hour earlier standpoint. Um, You've obviously done a lot of work inside of these men's groups and you were referring to your own experience growing up in an environment where you felt like a sensitive individual that increasingly was in situations where that sensitivity was like not approved of or permitted or allowed or related to or however you want to frame it. So increasingly a self-concept had to develop that was divorced from that because that behavior was punished. And I have to imagine that working in these environments... There's a lot of pretty entrenched self-concept going on, particularly around social issues of masculinity and what it means to be a strong man and so on. So to ask, again, maybe a slightly too big question, what have you seen of that? And then also, like, what are some of the approaches that you've had to helping people reorient their view of themselves in maybe a slightly more healthy way, or maybe making space for those more vulnerable parts of themselves?
2: Great question. We all all have, there's different ways of looking at self-concept. And so we could say that someone has a a, a conscious self-concept, like what they think they, who they think they are, who they present themselves as, or how they want to be. I oftentimes look at Facebook and think that uh, people present these lovely curated images of themselves. So they, 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 present their personas on Facebook. However, they view Facebook through their shadows. You know, the social comparison and, you know, the reaction was probably to some degree why uh, there's a higher incidence of depression with major Facebook usage. You know, I I believe because of that. That's a whole other story. But I think that what people are presenting is how they want people to see their, how they see themselves, right? But underneath it all, There are these self-concept dimensions that I believe we all have. I've been influenced a lot by Will Schutz's FIRO theory, which stands for Fundamental Interpersonal Relations Orientation, which I highly recommend to your viewers because I think it's a wonderful map for understanding oneself and others in relationship. In terms of self-concept, there are three different self-concept areas, how significant a person believes he or she is, how competent or capable a person believes he or she is. You know, I, I know some people don't identify as he or she, but I'm just using those for shorthand. And how, how uh, lovable a person believes he or she is, right? And, and those, get, those, those self-concept beliefs tend to be quite invisible, like all beliefs. We don't see our beliefs... But our beliefs act through us, through our behaviors, through our attitudes and behaviors, and so these self-concept issues get triggered by, you know, someone not returning an email, you know, or someone not wanting to go on a date with you, or someone, you know, passing you over for a job, and instead of actually soothing oneself and going, okay, hey, what's going on with me? What just got triggered in me?" and using it as an opportunity to go within which i would say most men don't do. I mean the whole idea of going within and looking at oneself and introspecting has not been part of traditional masculine ideology in the least. You know it's going to power through it, it didn't bother me, no big deal, i can handle it while inside you know there's there's a a, a caving that goes on. And so like You can't really cry. You can't really express certain more vulnerable emotions because that would mean that you're not competent. Indeed, you're not even lovable or you're not even significant if you demonstrate these so-called weaker qualities. But the problem is that if they're true, meaning on some level that you're not feeling significant, you don't believe you are, you don't believe you're kind, you don't believe, you don't ever get to really address the issues we can grow our self concepts through our awareness and our intentionality and so i find that for example in men's groups when we start looking at some of the deeper dynamics that people are experiencing and then they might share that you know there's a, there's a saying that a burden shared is a burden halved you know and being able, being willing to bring that out there there is a, a guy there is a guy in one of my men's groups who got fired you know, from his dream job. I mean, he was shocked. It came out of nowhere to him. And he he was crushed. And he reluctantly brought it up with a little prodding from yours truly uh, over here. He re- re- reluctantly brought it up and he started sharing about that. People gave him feedback. And before you knew it, he came back to himself. It was like, uh, you know, pouring, pouring water on a plant that hadn't, you know, it was just being sun-drenched, but didn't have enough uh, liquid there. And as he kind of popped back, his leaves started coming back, and he was alive, and he felt more confident. And Indeed, he wound up getting a great job not that long afterward. But if he had just stayed in that caved-in place and believed the story that, gosh, he really is incompetent, and maybe he really doesn't deserve it, and he doesn't really matter and all that kind of stuff, which can get triggered, our minds come up with stories like that and to begin to step back from those stories and go like, really, is that it's not necessarily true? Is it true in all instances like Byron Katie you know, would do? My favorite bumper sticker uh, is don't believe everything you think. You know? And so we're really working on developing a stronger self-concept with recognizing that, hey, we all suffer. You know, it's part of the human condition it is feeling pain and our minds tend to track back that pain and go back to other circumstances i mean i don't know if, if you rick and i'm not i'm not asking you to to disclose this but you know i could imagine where if you have some interaction with jan and it, and oh i'm not getting what i want it can trigger like other past experiences and that's what happens in relationships we track back to these other experiences that happen to be like the one we're experiencing right now especially if it's negative and we tend to exaggerate those and forget all the positive you know, experiences, which is why I think, like, your work, Rick, is so important to really honor and acknowledge and breathe into the positive.
1: Yeah, the beneficial experiences that are real uh, as a kind of intimacy with them and a gift to yourself about them. You're exactly right.
0: You've spoken pretty openly here about your own experience, about uh, struggles that. May have been present in your experience when you were younger, temperamental things that you've worked on over time, however you want to frame it. If you had the opportunity to like go back in time and talk to yourself as a child or as a young adult, somebody who was actively going through those experiences, what would you want to say to that person? What do you think would have made a difference for them?
2: That's a really, that's a beautiful and sweet question. And I I feel a little teary even hearing it. And the first words that came up were, it's going to be all right. Yeah. It's going to be all right. And, and actually, it is all right. It doesn't need to be different. And I think one of the things that I see people do is they, they drive themselves crazy because life isn't okay as it is. You know, if they get this or do that or do this, then finally, it's going to be okay. And, and I was one of those people. Absolutely. And I'm not one of those people anymore, you know, because I've come into a place of just, you know, I'm looking out here and the sun is setting in the background and I can appreciate the trees and the beauty that I'm witnessing in this moment. And I don't have to imagine a beautiful sunset that's going to happen, you know, several weeks from now or several years from now. You know, to really focus on the beauty that exists in every moment if you pay attention.
0: I think that's a great reflection, and Daniel, truly, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. We really enjoyed it and appreciate it.
2: Hey, you know what? Doing it with you guys, there's no people on the planet I'd rather do it with.
1: Oh, well, thank you, Matt.
0: That's really
2: great, Daniel. Totally sweet doing this with you.
0: So today we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Daniel Ellenberg. Our conversation focused on the topics of friendly and fearless, and we started by explaining what we meant by that how somebody can communicate with clarity and strength and verve while also being compassionate toward other people. One of the framings that Daniel used that I really enjoyed was the idea of thinking of fearlessness not as fearless as in no fear, but rather in terms of the actual combination of the two subwords, simply fear less. A lot of the conversation focused around this common experience that we have as humans where we conflate social fear with physical fear the systems in the brain that represent physical fear to us actual physical safety are also the ones that are taken over when we're in social environments and feel threatened by others so it's easy to get stimulated into a literal fight-or-flight response by a challenging interpersonal interaction one of the big ways to combat that is simply by pausing or as we said during the conversation increasing the space between a stimulus and a response, so that we can respond to something rather than simply reacting to it without thinking. Daniel shared a variety of strategies that he has for doing just that, including one that really stuck with me, the idea of almost seeing the future if you take a certain course of action, particularly one that has been automatic or problematic for you for some time, how you can kind of see the chain of events, the way it's going to play out, the anger, the irritation, the negative interaction with that person almost out of the corner of your eye and instead choose a different course. Daniel spent a lot of time working with men's groups in particular, and he spoke, I think, really skillfully to the ways in which men are socialized into increased competition and unnecessary aggression and really many of the elements that we talk about culturally in terms of manifestations of toxic or problematic masculinity. And he shared that often by having these groups where men are invited to feel more heard and more vulnerable and to really open up with softness, it can allow access to a whole suite of emotions that, you know, a lot of people are not brought up with as being viewed as being appropriate or essential for men. We closed with a conversation related to a topic that's been near and dear to my heart recently, this idea of changing or altering self-concept and the ways in which our external behaviors are often a manifestation of our internal view of self, viewing the internal self as the kind of person who blank, whether that blank is gets mad at their kids, doesn't go to the gym, doesn't work as hard as they can, isn't a high achiever, whatever our language is that we use internally about ourself so often becomes a manifestation of our behavior out in the world. And Daniel spoke to some of the ways in which he's seen people reframe that self-concept over time. So I'd like to take a moment to remind you about the workshop that Rick and Daniel will be teaching at the Greater Good Science Center. There will be a live stream of that workshop so you can access it anywhere in the world. And if you'd like to learn more, I've included a link to it in the description of today's podcast. I'd also like to remind you about our new Patreon account. You can go to patreon.com backslash beingwellpodcast if you'd like to support the show. And in return for your support, you'll get access to things like Just One Thing episodes, expanded show notes, and even a monthly Q&A episode where Rick and I will be answering questions directly from our patrons. It's something that I've put a lot of work into. We're going to keep on growing it as time goes on. And my hope is that over time, it allows us to really take the show to the next level and grow it even more. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening.